Welcome to the Lubber's Hole and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We're going to dedicate the whole of this week's episode to hearing from a very special guest. This is a guy who had a big hand in bringing so many of our listeners to the canon. Right, by means of the 2003 Peter Weir movie, Master and Commander. The Weir movie was praised for not only great cinematic performances and storytelling and bringing the canon to life, but for all the accuracy and the detail. And we're very, very lucky to get the chance to talk today to... Gordon Larko, who worked as a design consultant and historical consultant on the movie, along with many other movie and TV credits, as we're going to hear. And we're going to have that chance to sort of go behind the scenes, go below decks, and understand a little bit about what was happening there and what the decisions were, as well as Gord's role in putting this together. So we hope you don't mind that we've paused our exploration of the fortune of war. We haven't forgotten where we're up to. We haven't forgotten the things that still need to befall Jack and Stephen and the rest in Boston. But we're going to take the whole episode this week to hear our conversation with Gordon Larko. So one hand for the ship, one hand for yourself, and hold on. Here we go. It's our great pleasure to welcome to the podcast our very special guest, Gord Larko. Gord works as a technical advisor and historical consultant to the movie and the TV industry relating to military and naval history. Gord, you have, I think, at least 64 movie and TV advisor credits, um, but the ones we all know about are Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, back in 2003, and in just this past year, Greyhound, the movie set in World War II starring Tom Hanks. Gord is a retired officer in the Royal Canadian Navy, and also operates businesses that he owns in the field of outfitting sailing training ships, outfitting classic yachts, and building self-steering gear for ocean-going yachts. Gord, welcome. It's really great to have you with us. Hi there. Welcome aboard. The quarter deck is that way, if you want to salute. <laughs> no, I'm not wearing my cap. Okay. Oh, gosh, okay. <laughs> so what got you involved in the representation of historic ships and in, in TV and movies? Because I'm guessing this must have been a thing for you, you know, even before the days of Peter Weir and Master and Commander. Yes, uh, it did start kind of early. Uh, when my mother passed away uh, in 2005, among her effects, I found a, a little drawing that she'd kept in a box and noted on the bottom, drawn by Gordy at age two years, six months. And you can tell it's a 74. Three masts, square yards, three <laughs> rows of gun ports. <laughs> I don't know how I did that, but my mom, I guess, thought I must be possessed or something, and she kept that little scrap of paper that I scribbled on. I've always had an interest. My uncle, Con Costas, was a uh, a master rigger of yachts. Uh, I was very proud later uh, in my career after university to step into his shoes at the same company he worked at before me, and uh, I slipped into the film side of things when I was a member of the marketing department of a Royal Navy historical uh, reconstructed site here in Ontario in Canada, where I became captain of one of the uh, schooner gunboats that the site operated and became responsible for marketing the place. I uh, realized that uh, budgets were small. Uh, people don't really know that they should love their history unless they're told they should. So I, I put a lot of effort into seducing film companies to come to use our locations, figuring that I could multiply nice. my ad dollars that way. And I got a, a reputation for being able to be a good translator between movie people who are wild and crazy and museum people yeah. for whom a good day is a day in which nothing changes. And when a film crew would come to the site, they'd be contracted to use this angle of that building, but they'd get there and say, hey, this looks great. And they'd drive a nail through a 200-year-old door to put a poster on it. And my, uh, I became pretty good at keeping peace between the two. So after I uh, went back to the private sector in the marine business, uh, I kept getting phone calls and was doing uh, documentaries on a part-time basis, basically paying for my sailing for years and years. Yeah until one day something really big came, and that was Master and Commander. Wow. So that came about. Were you already a, a fan of the O'Brien books at that point? Yes. I, I discovered, actually, O'Brien relatively late. I was raised on Horatio Hornblower. I remember I used yeah. to uh, ride my bicycle to the local library to get the next book. And uh, <laughs> when I got to the end, I was horrified to find that was the end, and he 
had died years and years before and there would be no more. I dabbled with a few other authors in that genre, but didn't really like them very much. And one day, a friend lent me a copy of HMS Surprise, a dog-eared paperback. That was in the mid-80s, I guess. And I started reading it, but I didn't like it. And I just threw it aside in my boat. And later that summer, uh, going on my annual trip down to the Thousand Islands uh, from Toronto, those uh, if anyone wants to Google Lake Ontario, they'll see that's a 160-mile passage. And I forgot to bring a book to read. I had nothing but HMS Surprise. Ah. So I thought, oh, well, I started reading it again. And I've described elsewhere the sensation was like falling through the ceiling into a room. I, I realized I mm. loved it. And, uh, and O'Brien was still alive and still writing. So that was my introduction. <laughs> nice. Fantastic. And are you one of those people that finds yourself rereading and kind of nerding out about, you know, audiobook narrators and which editions and stuff? I've tried listening to the audiobooks. I've never been able to manage them. Uh, I know some people love them, and I know those people who do those projects do a good job, but I think the characters are too personal to me uh, that I I can't Uh, really get around the voices that aren't what I'm expecting. But I do reread the books constantly. Uh, The funny thing is I've only done a a consecutive reading of uh, of the whole canon maybe three times in all the years. I I find I read favorite okay. books over and over again. Yeah, he dipped back in. So, Gord, we've talked a lot in a couple of our recent episodes about Stephen Maturin. Maybe this is a good moment to talk about Jack Aubrey as somebody with a naval career yourself, knowing something about the life and times of naval officers back in that era. What what, what do you like about Lucky Jack? How, how does he ring true for you? Well, he rings true uh, because of the glimpses of the bureaucracy of, of being an officer in a military service that you see very well portrayed by O'Brien in his descriptions of Jack's and his worries and what he's working on and so forth. Uh, I've described uh, the modern Navy to people as exciting and proud, worthy, worthwhile, difficult in in a challenging way. But it's also sometimes uh, your worst nightmare of a civil service with regards to procedures and paperwork. And I see glimpses of that in O'Brien's work with reference to Jack that I don't see in other historical fiction. An officer who's now passed away, uh, who served in the RCN through World War II up to the 60s, said to me once, don't ever romanticize the service, Gord. It's bloody hard work. And our business is breaking things and hurting people when diplomacy fails. And uh, Bill Mm -hmm. died before I was actually in the service myself, but I never forgot that. On the other hand, you have to have your head in the clouds a little bit or you wouldn't put up with the bad parts. Yeah. Got any favorite quotes of Jack's then? What what really represents Jack's sort of impatient, anti-bureaucratic character to you? Oh, my favorite of that is, uh, I believe, in Master and Commander when he's outfitting Sophie. And he, uh, uh, he just beautifully handles and manages the dockyard manager. He, he uh, asks for and bargains for and finally badgers for and gets bow chasers that are, are just completely inappropriate to his vessel. And he tries them out and he, sure enough, they're too big and they don't work and they're not right. So he returns them, which is, creates a situation that he set up very carefully where he can tell the dockyard manager, you were right, which fluffs up that guy's feathers so when Jack then asks for what he really wants, which is the longer yards, <laughs> he gets them without problem. And Jack handled that perfectly. In Canada, we'd say he stick handled it well uh, using an image of hockey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. He's got that sh- sure touch with people, hasn't he? Yes. And of course, there's also that. At, other at least at sea. Yeah, at sea. <laughs> and there's that other point where he's uh, he, he proclaims corruption. I love corruption. It's the only way to get things done. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, that's not the the modern RCN, right? There's none of that. No, no. In fact, if it, 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 it <laughs> does happen, it makes national headlines, but we don't do that. So you were already a big fan of the representation of sailing ships. You were already a big fan of Patrick O'Brien's work. Was it easy to say yes to the idea of advising on a movie adaptation or... Yes, you it, have was, it was easy. It was easy for me to say yes, but not so easy for Fox. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, there's a bit of a story there. <clears throat> I first heard of the film about a year before it actually got going. It was just in development. And I was sitting at my desk where uh, my day job was national sales manager for a yacht outfitting company. Uh, in the evenings, oh. I was still captain of the HMSB replica. And we can talk more about her if you're interested later. 
And mm -hmm. I had started importing rope through my employer's company to supply sailing ships. And that led me to deal with uh, historic vessels all over North America. And I became friends with uh, Captain Richard Bailey, who was the uh, manager slash captain of the HMS Rose replica operating on mostly on the East Coast of the States. Yeah. And one day Richard called me up and after chatting for a bit, he said, I've, I've FedExed you my rigging diagrams. You'll be receiving them later today. We're replacing all our running rigging. I need you to respond with a quote very quickly. You're going to get this job. I need the rope. I need your rope. I had an exclusive distribution agreement with the manufacturer. Mm. So I said, sure, Richard, I can do that. And I hung the phone up and I thought to myself, he can barely pay his phone bill most of the time. Where is he getting $80,000 to replace all his running rigging? Uh, and I picked up the phone, called him back and said, Richard, who's doing a Patrick O'Brien film? Because I knew she was a perfect. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I didn't tell you that. Because, of course, he'd signed a confidentiality agreement. Of course. And I said, okay, no problem. And I hung the phone up. And it took about two months. But I, I found who was uh, producing the upcoming film, which was called Far Side of the World then. Yeah. And they were finishing, uh, they were all in England, actually, finishing the first Harry Potter movie. And I began <sighs> corresponding with them. And in the meantime, I did get the contract to supply the rope, but I wasn't the uh, technical advisor for the film yet. And I was afraid that they had hired somebody else, and I was concerned about the unaccountable delay. We were just on the brink of, of a decision for weeks and weeks and weeks. And one day, I was speaking with the producer's uh, assistant, Andy Weltman, who's actually my agent now. And Andy called me, and he said, please stay in touch. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, I can't tell you. <laughs> so... What it meant oh. was they who they were going to hire. And uh, I was driving, uh, I guess about two weeks later, driving with my family on Highway 7 in Ontario, yeah. going past Perth, Ontario. There's another another place in Canada named by a homesick Brit. And <laughs> yeah. uh, my, my, my cell phone rang, and it was a young woman with an English accent. And uh, she said, I won't try to imitate her, but she said, stand by for Duncan Henderson. Well, Duncan was the producer. <sighs> And uh, uh, yeah. he came on the phone, and uh, uh, he's American, so he had a broad California jolly voice. And he, he, after asking me how I was, he said, are you in your car? I said, I am. He said, pull over and tell me when you're stopped and the transmission's in park. Nice. So I did that, and he said, okay, are you stopped? <laughs> yes. And then he said, he took a deep breath, made about a four-second silence, and said, I'm calling to ask you to please join us. And uh, I guess that was about 10 months of courtship, but uh, that's when I knew I was going to join the production. Wow. I was first hired to work for four weeks to show the, uh, teach the principal actors how to look like officers in the Royal Navy and to uh, drill the Royal Marine squad that we had on board. And uh, yeah. you mind if I launch into another story? Oh, please do. We're all about the stories. Absolutely. Okay, well... At the end of about five weeks, and I'd negotiated a leave of absence from my job, I was called into a meeting with the uh, the director, producer, and uh, Mr. Crow. I thought it was an exit interview. I thought they were saying goodbye, and I thought I was going home in a few days. Oh, wow. And uh, one of them said to me, Gordon, uh, what do you think we'll miss when you're gone? And what I said was, uh, everybody in the world wants to work on this film. All your departments are being run in circles with a blizzard of good advice most of it good, but they need to make decisions. Yeah. What you're going to miss is somebody who's going to sit down and say, okay, for scene 135, part B, say that's the three of us talking here. This table needs to be wooden. Gordon should be wearing a red shirt and blue jeans. Yeah. Uh, you should be doing this. That kind of glass should be on the table and offer the director two yeah. or three choices, but only two or three choices for each option. And then once the decision's made, tell everyone to shut up and move on and stop talking about it. And they looked at yeah. each other and Duncan said, would you stay and do that? Nice. So <gasps> my first call home was to my boss. And I said, I'm sorry, John, I'm not coming back. And uh, John was from <laughs> Sea, not far from you, Ian, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with, with his Essex accent, he said, oh, damn it, I knew it. And then he, he softened and said, oh, Gordon, I know how much you love this work. Good luck and tell me, uh, keep in touch. And we're still friends. And uh, then my second call was to my wife. 
<laughs> and how was she with it? I, she had the same line. Yeah, actually, we we commented uh, in our parents' generation there was World War II, uh, yeah. uh, causing long separations. Uh, nobody was shooting at me. Yeah. But there were times when I was quite homesick. I'm not complaining at all, but I remember going into the studio one morning in Rosarito, Mexico, thinking my elder son Pete's voice had changed and I wasn't there. And he was in his early teens. And I was feeling pretty miserable, thinking, what kind of father am I being? And I've been away for months. And uh, and then as we came up to the gates of the studio, I saw the rigging of two frigates. And as I came in, I saw my Marines drilling and I saw seamen being taught a sword drill. And I thought, well, Gordy, where else did you want to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the the movie got got and still gets really great love from the audience for all of the detail, not only military, but historic and cultural. I'm sure everybody's got their own favorite moment. Are there any particular moments in the movie where you, you look back on that and think, yeah, we really got that? Yeah, there are several. Um, there's um, one that is my absolute favorite, but I'll save that. One that is another favorite is when uh, Lord Blakeney uh, brings the uh, the beetle up to Stephen. Yes. When Stephen's disappointed and not being left ashore. Left ashore. The curious and that, yeah. that young man did that scene so well that we rewrote the script around him to bring his character up higher. Oh, I love Blakeney. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. He yeah. looked like a, a little boy becoming a man. Yeah. Uh, he wanted yeah. to comfort his friend, and he did that so perfectly well. Another favorite moment is uh, one of the scenes when there's a pursuit, and Jack finishes his lines and then turns and strides forward up the starboard side of the waist of the ship, and the camera follows him from astern. And the crew parts like water in, uh, in front of him, not because they're afraid of him, but yeah. clearly because they love and respect him. And the way he walks, that's his goddamn deck. And uh, not because he's a tyrant, but because it's his ship. And I just watched that and I thought, yes. And I told uh, Crow afterwards, I believe you're an officer in the Royal Navy. And he just grinned. Uh, he, he had it. <laughs> but there's a moment that is still the subject of people sharing stills on the internet, which is that of a seaman with his lower garments around his ankles, taking a moment of ease at the head. <laughs> yes. Uh, was, that, was, was that something that just came along by accident? How did that come about? No, that wasn't by accident. Uh, although the, uh, well, maybe the uh, Alex Palmer playing Slade, we were having a discussion one morning and we addressing uh, the ship, getting ready for a, a winter scene, a uh, Cape Horn scene. And I commented to the director, Peter Weir, I said, with 198 men on board and only four spots available in the seaman's head, there would always be someone sitting there. And Peter jumped into action and he had the production assistants call Alex and tell them that he was going to get a close up. <laughs> and Alex is a professional actor. And of course, that's a good thing. So he came bounding up, all cheerful and happy. And then we explained to him what he was going to be doing. And we actually, we turned him around facing outboard so you could see the pants down. Otherwise, it wasn't clear what was going on there. So that's that that's incorrect. But uh the scowl on the face was directed at me. And because I was squatting <laughs> the camera as the barge went by uh shooting that scene. And uh and then there he is, he got his close-up. Incidentally, there's something uh, we, we experimented with many different kinds of fake snow, but none of them looked real. So what oh, we ended up doing was uh, was mincing or shaving uh, giant blocks of ice and blowing them on, on the ship. But we were in Mexico, uh, south just uh, south yeah. of Tijuana, north of Ensenada, and it was hot. But uh, and so the snow would melt in about ten or fifteen minutes. So we'd have to stop and then redress the ship with snow and start again. Wow! And yes, uh, Alex got a black wow. snow in his face when we were dressing the bow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, happy days, but worth it for a close-up, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I'm not sure he does. <laughs> actually, he, actually, he was a great actor. Uh, when we were shooting another scene that he features in, uh, it was uh, off the coast of Brazil, and the, all the all the uh, dugouts and launches were alongside, and the brisk trading was going on, and, yeah. and Stephen's gathering intelligence on where the frigate is and how far ahead she is. When we shot that scene, Alex took it on himself to embezzle ship's equipment. And you can see him leaning out oh. a gun port, trading a boarding axe for, an, I think it's an arrow, a, a bow and several arrows. Right, right. And yes. he came up with that himself. <laughs> That's brilliant. 
Well, yeah, there's another story. When Jack's up on, on his uh, deck and he's looking at the chart, trying to calculate how far ahead the frigate is, I <clears throat> supplied the production with an estimate of how f- many miles per day a fast sailing vessel would cover. And I think it was, we figured 225 miles. And Jack said, how would I measure that? So I said, you'd use Mark One dividers. And he said, what's that? I said, your fingers. So that's what he does on the chart. Yeah, yeah, I can visualize that right now. And the funny thing is that nobody notices he's holding the brass dividers in his mouth, but chooses to use his hand. Right. <laughs> Using his fingers. <laughs> so the the movie's a long time ago now. Yeah. Do the cast and crew still keep in touch? Is there any kind of fellowship among, or even newfound O'Brien fans among the, the cast and crew? Well, I um, I don't know about newfound fans. Most of us that I had direct contact with, including Tom Roth, who was a senior producer at Fox in those days and is the president of Sony Entertainment now, it was all we're already Patrick O'Brien fans. Uh, many yeah. of us have stayed in touch, uh, partially out of friendship, like uh, Martin Bibbings, who was our artillery expert, who uh, lives in Harwich, England. We've kept in touch over the yeah. years, and Dan and Jan Speaker, who were our sword fighting experts. They're in Los Angeles, and I actually saw them as recently as a year and a bit ago. We stayed friends. It was a pretty happy crew. We all worked very hard together, but there was good leadership, and uh, there was a a feeling of purpose and crusade. It was a very happy crew. Nice. O'Brien fans especially seem to love the movie for the authenticity of the detail, just the same as they love the books for the way O'Brien seemed to breathe in all of this period detail. What is it that motivates a producer or a director to work so hard at it? Because presumably it's costly and it's time consuming. And in some cases, you know, you, authenticity might even get in the way of telling the story. What, what is it that they're aiming for? Well, that's a good point. And I'll say to start, one thing I often tell productions is it's usually less expensive to do it right. Ooh, huh. uh, if you avoid the big gasoline explosions as if a cannonball hit a barbecue or whatever. But uh, <laughs> uh, we had none of that in Master and Commander. Uh, there is uh, what I call a patina of realism that perhaps not every mm. viewer will notice, but things add up together. People may not notice that I gave the hanging knees and the gun deck a French detail because, of course, Surprise was built by the French, and who knows that except people mm. that have read the books 15 times. But there is a patina that develops that uh, creates a legitimacy for the film that increases its power. Interestingly, I, uh, Peter Weir, in one of his interviews right after the film came out, He described most eloquently what it's like. He said, when you take a good book and turn it into a screenplay, you pick it up and all the words fall out. And what he meant is, for example, there might be a scene where O'Brien is spending two pages describing what Stephen's thinking and worrying about. But our actors have to do it in seven seconds by closing their eyes, sighing, Mm. turning, turning their head seven degrees to the right. And the audience needs to understand that. And that's the, the real difficulty in the art in historical filmmaking. And that's where authenticity can, can help get that part of the story across. My, my job on these projects is, is to show the production as near as I can where understood truth is. And I think of that as the tracks down the center. So when the production has mm-hmm. to make decisions to go port and starboard of the true course, they know when they're going off course and by how much. And sometimes I will decide that this is something I will argue about. And other times I'll say, yes, I understand why we're doing that. Actually, can I give you an example of yeah, that? That'd be great. Uh, O'Brien sure. Books describes the distinctive ringing crack of a bronze gun. I was asked to come up with an actual description of that to give Richard King, our sound man, who won an Academy Award for his work, a brilliant guy, what that sound is. So I gave him a file of uh, period firsthand descriptions of the sound of gunfire they're actually not that easy to find and i came up with the sound of bronze guns and people describing the sound of tearing silk as shot flew by and so forth Mm. or the terrible sound of ripping silk and uh the upshot of it was i was sent with richard and a, a crew to northern michigan in the winter to shoot guns of the right caliber in the right uh ranges for every time a gun is shot in the film and we did that and the interesting thing is the uh, when a bronze gun is, is fired, it sounds like an anvil being struck with a hammer. The bing that it makes mm. almost overshadows the boom. Mm. And the sound of shot flying is actually absolutely horrifying. It's a, a warbling sound that you hear in the film. 
And when we brought all that back, uh, the production decided under Peter's leadership that the the sound of the gun firing was the bronze gun was too jarring and and distracting to leave the way it was. And again, the director said to me, Gordon, if I had a narrator, I'd put your voice on saying the reason that gun made that that distinctive sound was because and describe it. He said, I don't want the audience distracted and to wonder what that was. I want them to concentrate on the courage of the young man who fired it. So you don't hear that ringing crack, uh, unfortunately, but that's a diversion we made to tell the story. Fantastic. Interestingly, I got an aggressive email from a gentleman who was a, a, a veteran of World War II service when the film first came out, saying, I know those were rotated projectiles because I've heard them in flight. And he thought we cheated and uh, diluted the quality of the film by having the wrong sound. But I was able to tell him, no, those were 9 and 12 and 24 pounder balls flying. And that's what they sound like. Ian, I don't know about you, but... I've got to visit that head that you posted on social media. So it might be time for a quick break. <laughs> I think it might. So welcome back. You're with the Lubbers Hole podcast. We're talking to Gordon Larco, and we hope that you all had a peaceful visit to the head and you've dusted off the snow and the icicles. Let's pick it up again. I can only imagine that that being the man who makes the decisions on those things, Gord, puts you right in some people's bullseye in terms of what they thought it should have been. Well, yes, there's, um, well, the production is being made. I have to be very careful that uh, in my zeal, I'm not embarrassing disappointing or frustrating people I need to work with. So I I always take great pains to make sure the props and wardrobe and effects and so forth departments understand that I'm there to help them and usually to confirm their decisions. Hopefully when I have to apply guidance, it's done far enough beforehand that at the moment when the director's about to call action, we just glance at each other, nod and grin because we know everything's right. Nice. The decisions have been made. Afterwards, uh, yeah, there are people uh, either through jealousy or bitter disappointment uh, at what they thought it should be, uh, decide to make their feelings felt. But that's just part of the game, I guess. Well, and I, I can't imagine, I mean, for all of us who love this detail, yeah, there's some fanatics that I'm sure give you a hard time afterwards because <laughs> it's not the well, way they thought it should have been. I was amused, actually, to find the things that I thought we'd be crucified for. People never noticed. <laughs> And the things we did on purpose to help tell the story drove people mad. And one of them was uh, was the scene where uh, after the first action, Surprise is badly damaged. She, her rigging is shredded by various shot. And Jack puts the boats in the water or u- makes use of the boats to tow into a fog bank to escape. Well, nobody noticed that in that sequence, there was enough wind somehow to make the large French frigate, about a thousand tonner, sail with a foaming bow wave, which means she must be doing five to eight knots, yet we don't have enough wind to move. And how come she didn't just come alongside? (laughs) And nobody noticed how three small boats were able to tow a 500-ton frigate, surprise, into a fog bank fast enough to get away from the ship with a foaming bow wave. Nobody nobody complained about that. Nobody complained about uh, the unlikelihood of fog near the equator and why the French didn't just follow them into the fog and clobber them. But they did complain, or one fellow in particular complained, that the midshipman in charge of the boats gave the wrong command to stop rowing. And we shot that scene correctly first, uh, where Calamy stands up in the boat and he says, oars, which is the correct command to stop the oarsmen and have them hold their oars parallel to the water, motionless. And the director commented to me, I I don't want him to be a professional naval officer in this moment. I want him to be a frightened teenager who's just realized he's going to survive. And we had him uh, say the order wrong. He said, vast pulling, lads, good work. And that that generated about as much uh, hostile email as did leaving the tables messy in the mess dinners. So it's funny, the dinners in the books are set pieces where we get a lot of the, the social side of character developments happening and bits of plot exposition. There are obviously moments that O'Brien really relishes as a writer. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things I like best about the books, because having served 11 years in the RCN myself and 
attended many mess dinners. Uh, that's what they're like. Uh, they're very different from military mess dinners where, uh, well, the few that I've seen, the uh, discipline was what I'll call brutal and rigid. Mm. At a naval mess dinner, there is no rank, although there is respect. Uh, telling jokes, even at your colleagues' expense, are relished and welcomed and treasured so long as they're in good taste. And we tried to get that spirit uh, in our visually created dinners, as O'Brien did in the books, that it's like a family dinner. There's no question who's in charge. There's no question that there is respect, that this is a military service. But it's a naval mess dinner, and it's it's uh, an institution that has been developed over the centuries to help men get along. A well-crafted story at a colleague's expense is something that's treasured and sometimes retold. And actually, as an example, in a modern mess dinner, now that I'm retired, I get to sit at the head table, and I uh, there was a debate going on between the port and starboard divisions, the two tables, and it's in a sort of very humorous, ritualized manner. And I stood up and commented that I just couldn't stand this anymore. And I, I'm remembering the age of sail when sometimes equally powerful warships would face each other and just hammer and hammer and hammer and the bloodshed and carnage was was accumulating and nobody was getting any advantage. And I said, I just can't stand this anymore. So I'm going to apply uh, something that would I hope will tip the balance one way or the other. And I knew that one of my uh, colleagues, the president of the starboard division, was a, an amateur actor. And I said, from now on, all your responses will be given in the voice of one of the characters you've played. And to the other division, I said, from now on, all your responses will be sung. You have to sing them. And nice. there was a roar of approval. And in no time at all, the actor defeated the singer. That, that's what a room was like. Uh, at HMCS York, the uh, RCN Naval uh, Reserve Division I belong to, for nearly a century, every mess dinner has begun with an argument over which side of the room is forward and which is aft. And of course, that uh, yep. determining that determines which is the port division and which is the starboard division. And we argue about that every time. And uh, it, it's <laughs> a ritual by which we start. And we try to get that, <sighs> that family feeling across in the, uh, in the film. Nice. And it really comes across as well, doesn't it? They're, they're so at ease with each other, like, like you say. Yeah, there's no question who's in charge. And uh, I did take care in the film that when the mess dinner was down in the wardroom, not in the captain's cabin, the first officer, Pullings, is the president, and he sits at the head. Yeah. And Jack, as his honored yeah. guest, sits at his right. Mm. He's a guest yeah. when he visits his officers, which is something was something difficult for the uh, the production to understand. It's it's his ship. He's the captain. Well, yes, but. When he visits the mess, he's a he's a guest. He doesn't go there unless he's invited. Right. So, Gord, the, the perennial question for, for followers of the Master and Commander movie story, do, do you want to bet us $10 in, in any denomination of dollars <laughs> that there won't be a sequel to Master and Commander? Well, no, I won't make a bet like that. Um, I, I hope it happens. <laughs> it, it, the circumstances that create it are, uh, are years long and, uh, and very complex because of the, the money involved. Occasionally, rumors flare up. And if they come to me from people who I, I don't think have heard from a credible source, I just say, nah, I don't think so. If they come from me uh, from sources I think might be credible, I contact Tom Roth. And uh, he would be in a position to know. <laughs> and the most recent time that came up, uh, his comment back to me was, no, Gord, I'm sorry. Not yet. It just didn't make enough money to make the decision easy. And then he said, but sometimes we like to make films we're proud of. Nice. And uh, I think that's pretty high kudos from a man in his position. Wow. And more recently, you've worked on the, the Greyhound movie with Tom Hanks. And I guess there's a personal connection there because there are RCN Corvettes playing a part in the convoy escort. And it's the it's World War II, right? And it's also it's C.S. Forrester mm -hmm. source rather than Patrick O'Brien source. How, how was the experience on Greyhound different from the experience working on Master and Commander? Well, you know, I'll say what was similar first. Uh, we still had the same feeling of excited crusading yeah. uh, that we were uh, honoring yeah. things that really happened. Both stories are fictional, but both both are based on real periods in history, and we drew on real history for the events in them. In Greyhound, I was in a position to honor particularly my late friend, uh, William Lanoz, who during the war as Lieutenant Lanoz served aboard HMCS Assiniboine who had her epic fight uh, south of Greenland uh, against U-210 
where she uh, they had a, a, a about a forty minute gun battle on the surface before finally ramming and sinking her. Bill Bill's the man who told me to never romanticize the service. He served in it all his life. Mm. Uh, I think he loved the service. He told me before he uh, died, actually in the last days of his life, that he hated the war for it having robbed him of the carefree youth he should have had. He told me he hated mm. the killing he participated in and witnessed. But then I remember he put his head back on the pillow and took a sigh and then looked at me with a completely different look on his face, like a hard squint. And he said to me, but Gordy, nothing in my life ever matched being officer of the watch and a well-armed Canadian destroyer doing 36 knots off the coast of France looking for trouble. And <laughs> that's a great line. I, I never forgot that. And I, I described that to, uh, to Mr. Hanks and our other actors. And I described it as the duality in a proud service. You don't like the killing. You yeah. regret the, the horror. You regret losing friends. You regret what you're doing to the other side. And Bill told me also that he hated shooting at other ships because he knew the communities that they were just like his own. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, mm. it's what they did. And there, there is excitement. Uh, that's not the reason to go to war, but that's, that's a seductive and dangerous element to it. And we did our best to put that into both Master and Commander and Greyhound and other productions I've worked on. I was just thinking, Gord, when you describe that, that we're, you know, we're in the midst of fortune war right now. Yeah. And just this incredible respect that we, looking back in the canon, that the uh, captains have for each other, that the crews have for each other, that, you know, as prisoners of war is how they treat each other. And those, you know, and you had the scene in Master and Commander with the two commanders, you know, telescope to telescope, watching each other like that. and. Yeah. We've got that scene at the end of Fortune War with Lawrence as well. So it just really brings it to life. I appreciate that, your, your, Bill's comments to you there. Well, uh, there was a scene that we talked about shooting where Jack was preparing Stephen before the fight with Ashwan when they were in the uh, whaler disguise, how to behave in the event that they, they, they lost. Oh, I wrote lines where Jack is telling Stephen, put your purse in your waistband, wear your best uniform, put your your surgeon's warrant inside your your coat, stay close to the officers, the officers will tend to look after each other. There was a sense then that uh, nice. they were fellow professionals. And I, I remember reading to the production a description of uh, uh, Colonel Ferguson during the American Revolution, uh, famous for developing the Ferguson rifle, who had a chance to shoot George Washington and two of his aides with his remarkable rifle. But he didn't. And when he was asked why he didn't, he said, it's not the job of the professionals to murder each other without leadership armies or mere mobs brawling without object. Wow. And there was that sense then that they needed to control the violence. And that carries through today too. Officers carry yeah. small arms, not generally uh, the same weapons in World War II anyway, the same weapons as the soldiers. Yeah. Their job was to control the violence. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting point you bring up there. Nice. So in Greyhound, we've got this tension i guess between the fact that the original teller of the story c.s forrester was a brit he's telling a story about an american officer but also at a moment in the war where the american navy was was new to the game and there must have been a dynamic was it easy to portray the dynamic in the movie and how did that relate to the dynamic that might have gone on really between the three different navies in the Battle of the Atlantic. It was not so easy. Um, those who've read The Good Shepherd will know that the main plot uh, thread through that story was that Commander Krauss didn't know what he was doing. He had to learn, and he was making mistakes, and people mm -hmm. died as a result of his mistakes, but he learned. And he wasn't really hitting his stride until near the end of the story. That was softened somewhat in the film, although you uh, people who've read the books will see that when uh, uh, Commander Krauss first steps into his wheelhouse, he sees uh, that the two destroyers are off hunting on their own, though not, not paying attention to his orders. The truth is that in 42, when uh, the U.S. joined the war, there was some substantial resentment by among the other allies that they were joining so late. And the people fighting then were actually past the, the worst of the Battle of the Atlantic, but the people living it didn't know it then, of course. But there was some some hard feeling about that. And in that story, Krauss, despite the fact that he's on his first command at sea and a newly minted commander, is accidentally in command of all of the escort squadron, which is composed in the book of Polish, Canadian and British warships who've been fighting hard for three years and are damned good at it. But they have to follow the leadership of a man who's just learning. 
And uh, that's actually a very normal military situation. We're all trained mm. to cope with situations like that, to draw upon the skills of our subordinates. But it created problems for the character that appear in the movie, but not quite so blatantly as in the book. Nice. Let's give you a scenario here, Gord. You've been cast adrift. You have to sail an open boat 100 miles back to land. Who who would you rather have as crew? Ha- Hanks in his Krause persona or Crow in his Aubrey persona? Um, probably Aubrey because he's a, he's a practical sailor. Yeah. Ernie Krause was a, uh, a shorebound bureaucrat until he went to sea. I would count on him to learn yeah. his lessons quickly. But the man who would yep. uh, keep the boat on its feet and sailing to windward, I think, would be Jack Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> and does that, does that ring true for Crow as well? How was he as a sailor? He was a great sailor. And uh, actually, I would say both, uh, both men have an absolute ability to, to look like they've, they're doing what they've been shown how to do all their lives. Uh, Hank said that as well. And they both have a command presence uh, without being overbearing. I remember showing Jack Aubrey, uh, Russell Crowe, how to hold a sextant. And after a couple of tries, he did it like he'd done it in Heaving Seas all his life. And I described that scene where he walks down the deck like he owns that deck. He knew how to do that. And Ernie Krause uh, was a different sort of captain. Uh, He had a, I won't say a politeness about him, but there was that aspect. So when he bumps into somebody on the bridge, because of course they'd be jostling each other, he pats the kid on the shoulder as if to say sorry. He doesn't really mean sorry because he's the captain, but he's got that in him. And uh, Hanks uh, portrayed that very well. There was a, a scene where he's made an error in, in Greyhound and Krause is looking at a tanker burning and he's watching 40 odd men burn to death, uh, knowing that he might have prevented it and he's made a mistake. Uh. In The Good Shepherd, there's a page and a half describing the circumstances of the error and what he thinks he should have done and how badly he feels about it. I was watching on the set in Baton Rouge while we shot that scene. It was a set in a soundstage with screens all around it. So it was as about as artificial as it could be. And we had a flickering red light shining in Mr. Hanks's face to simulate the burning tanker. But I saw in his face sorrow, regret, a bit of shame. And then he closed his eyes, yeah. turned to the left and gave his next helm orders. You got to keep going. And I thought, yes, he's got it. Mm. that's a really great wow. talent isn't it that's stunning and it, it's what, it, what makes the the story come to life in the movie as well just so so brilliantly i, I hope so good i remember when uh, when you and i were talking a little while ago you've got a personal family connection to one of the characters the real life characters in the battle of the atlantic Can you tell us a bit about that yes that's an amazing story uh, and thanks for uh, for prompting me my dad was 14 years old in 1942 And he uh, had a story he used to tell us about being uh, sent by his parents down to Union Station in Toronto to stand on Front Street near the uh, clock, the uh, ornate clock that still stands on the sidewalk, waiting for his brother, Henry, to come home on leave and come striding out of the station. Uh, Henry was in the the army. And dad described standing there with the crowds streaming in and out of Union Station on Front Street seeing a senior German naval officer come walking through the crowd, parting them like the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. Dad said he had his coat over his shoulders, unbuttoned and arms not in his sleeves, his uh, German naval officer's cap on his head askew, and being followed by two Canadian soldiers who were obviously his guards. But Dad said the man was just exuding arrogance to the point where there was no question who was in charge. This man was just walking through the crowd and his guards were following him. The man stopped about 20 feet in front of Dad, put his hands on his hips, spreading his cape like Batman, the way my father told it to me relatively recently. And he said he looked up at the Royal York Hotel across Front Street, looked back over his shoulder at Union Station, which is quite an imposing public building, looked down at his boots, shake his head, and then walked east with his guards following him. Now, Dad told that story several times over the years. When I was uh, researching officers and behaviors for, uh, for Greyhound, I came across Otto Kretschmer's autobiography. Otto Kretschmer was Germany's leading U-boat ace during World War II. He was captured alive in 1942 and sent to the prison camp at Bowmanville, Ontario. Kretschmer described being horrified at being brought into Halifax and seeing a busy, uh, happy industrial port untouched by the war with convoys coming and going. 
Mm. He said he was put on a train and sent into the interior of North America, past one big industrial city after another, which of course would have been Halifax, Quebec, Montreal, Kingston, and finally Toronto. He said, all untouched by the war. And finally, he said, in Toronto, where he thought he was only going to find bears and log cabins, yet another big industrial city, <laughs> completely out of touch, out of reach of Germany in the war. He said, he, yeah. he wrote in his diary, he said, I looked at my feet and I realized at that moment that we could never win the war. Wow. And I think my dad saw that moment. Who else could that have been? Wow. I, I've shown my father uh, pictures of Kretschmer in his war years. But of course, dad's 90, 93 years old now. And that was a long time ago. But who else could that have been? Well, it's a great story. And that's the essence of how World War II turned out the way it did in, in a nutshell, right? The, the, the overreach of the Axis and the economic power of the new world and the old. Well, I've wondered sometimes... Uh, why uh, the Craigsmarine did not put more effort into finding a way to blockade Halifax and New York yeah, mm. rather than looking for convoys mid-Atlantic. If they had put their resources into that, God help us. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. Right. Did it ever occur to Donitz and Radar or did... <laughs> I bet it occurred to <laughs> uh, The logistics of going so far uh, were, would have been daunting. But if, yeah. they'd, if they'd gone, for example, up the St. Lawrence as they did in a in a disorganized way, if they'd done that in an organized manner, they, they might've done better. But uh, I think if you'll excuse me for speaking bluntly, I think in their arrogance, they didn't yeah. quite understand yeah. the power of yeah. the new world. I don't think they understood it. Right. No. And I think they were, they were continentalists and lovers of land armies and, and movement of men and machines around land. Yeah. And anyway, right. I'm, I'm not a naval historian, but like this rings really true. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be an interesting speculative history novel? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a bit of uh, yeah, uh, a bit of counterfactual. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Gold, you've advised on a Patrick O'Brien movie and on a C.S. Forrester movie and on a bunch of other productions as well. Are there any other books or authors that you'd still like to work on? Well, um, I'm actually working on an animated fantasy right now, uh, which is not my normal fare. But uh, the freedom of being able oh, to just okay. make stuff up as long as it's got the flavor is quite exhilarating. Uh, that's a, a, a feature film for Netflix called Jacob and the Sea Beast. If uh, anybody ever did uh, a feature remake of the Dam Busters, I'd love to work on that. I've done a fair bit of World War II and, and Great nice. War material. Funny thing is, I rarely work on the next picture that I'm chasing. Uh, Master and Commander is an exception right. to that. Usually they come out of nowhere while I'm in the midst of courting another one. I, a Greyhound was that way. I had fallen asleep huh. on my couch. Uh, <laughs> with a pizza on the table while my wife was away and woke up after midnight thinking, Oh, blast. I've fallen asleep in front of the TV and picked up my iPhone. And there was a, a text uh, to me from a producer I've worked on a couple of films with saying, call me now. And he'd written about half an hour earlier. Oh, so I, I phoned him and uh, <laughs> literally 37 seconds later, I'd said yes to working on Greyhound. So <laughs> you never know what's next. It's funny. You, you just said you never know what's next. And our next question is, what's next for Gordon? Uh, well, there, there's, <laughs> Gordon there's several brewing. I guess I'm up to my hips and Jacob and the Sea Beast right now. And uh, and the, the ship outfitting is going strong, too. So I guess that's, what, uh, that's what's keeping me busy. Nice. Gordon, it's been... Oh, Mike, do you, do you want to do a wrap-up? Because I've, I've, I've hogged a lot of the airwaves here. <laughs> No, no, no. I, and, and I, it's been my pleasure to listen to the two of you because uh, Ian is absolutely the historical one on our uh, of our duo, and I, I love the people and the emotions. I was so blown away preparing for this. I watched Master and Commander again, and that juxtaposition of incredible, accurate detail—you know, almost like a classical painter—and then. I kept feeling like the way that they would almost do a Monet-like impressionist thing to, in seven seconds, capture what would be pages of text. Uh, and the way those montages of scenes are put together, it just had, I, I, I know so many of our listeners were brought to the canon and brought to Patrick O'Brien by the power of that Good. book and how important you've been to it. So, we can't thank you enough for taking your time and, and being on the lover's hole with us. Well, you know, thank you. But I, I, I always uh, hasten to remind people I was one of 350 odd that worked on that film and we all made our contributions. <laughs> and Gord, if people are trying to contact you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Website, social media? Uh, the website is best. My email address is there. 
If you Google my name, it'll come up. Gordon Rocco. Yeah, fantastic. Gord, it's been a massive pleasure, a thrill having you with us. Thank you for talking through the stories. It's been really, really great. And we hope we get to catch up with you again one day soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Mike, wasn't that a great chat that we had with Gord? Wow, that was fabulous. And for somebody like Gord to take that time, you know, who, who obviously, you know, he's got a great love for O'Brien, a great love for the movie, a great love for the people who love O'Brien. And uh, we were just delighted to have him take time to share all of that with us. Absolutely. And I, I also enjoyed thinking about the whole idea of, you know, naval service and how the O'Brien books and the movie and other things are taking us towards, you know, understanding what it means to serve at sea and what that means for the people who are out there. That was a really great new perspective as well. It was. I mean, you know, and talking about his dad and his recollection, I mean, getting that personal yeah. touch back to history. That was really, I've got still a, a little bit of goosebumps on the arm here. <gasps> yeah, for sure. Now, where we are in the canon, we're edging towards the story of the surgeon's mate, and we're edging towards being located somehow or another in the city of Halifax. And here we are talking to a Canadian, and we've spoken to Canadians before. What's with all these Canadians and Patrick O'Brien? Is there something going on? I'll tell you, it really is something. It really is something. I mean, you know, all through the canon, we've had this great scenes of meals and dinners. And, uh, you know, we, we've been introduced to balls, but we're going to have a really big one coming up here in Halifax. And maybe, cross fingers, yeah. we might get to you know, reach back to one of our Canadian friends to talk about that as well. That would be fantastic. But I've got to tell you, Mike, right now, I'm thinking, I want to go back and watch the movie again. And I'm thinking, I want to get on and watch Greyhound again. And I'll probably watch The Cruel Sea as well. I'm in the mood for some naval movie action right now. I love that. Well, I, I will admit to being a full fanboy. I just watched the movie again. I plan to rewatch it again. And I just ordered the book, The Making Of, because I saw that Gord was quoted so much in it. <laughs> Well, we hope that you all enjoyed the time that we spent with Gord. We hope that you don't mind that we put a pause to to really dig into this conversation with Gord. It was lots of fun putting it together. Gord, we're very, very grateful to you for coming along. Uh, we hope that you'll cross paths with the podcast again. Yes, we wish you best of luck with a great life free of French agents and their interference. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, if you're curious to find out more, there are things that we're posting all the time on Facebook and on Twitter. So follow us at facebook.com forward slash lovers hole and tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter. We are at whole lovers and the podcasts are on YouTube as well. So just pretty much Google the lovers hole and you'll find us wherever we are. And we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And love that feedback. Love your comments. Thanks so much. Mike, I think that since we're in the mood for Halifax and we're in the mood for Canada, we should make haste. There's not a moment to lose. I think next time we have to get back into Patrick O'Brien. What do you say? Oh, with all my heart. Thanks, mates. Bye-bye.